And here we are again, once again, live from the Smokin' Jays podcast studio in Olympia, Washington. I've got part two of my interview with Dave42. And don't forget, in the show notes at theconservativehippie.com, I've got links to where you can find Dave42. He's got a um, channel that they're creating with Broken Anthem called The Mysteries of Earth. And I've got that link there. It hasn't been built out yet, uh, but you can subscribe now and uh, be uh, right there in the know when it comes out. Um, he is at RealDave42 on Telegram. He participates in the channel Broken Anthem and the channel Indecent Disclosure. Shout out to my friend Emily Johnson in Illinois. So here we go without any Long-winded lead-up, here's Dave42. You're saying, like, people like me don't exist. Okay, so so uh, when you get ghosted, um, what they do is they take away any record of you. Um, they'll actually change your dental uh, so that uh, you cannot be specifically identified. Um, in the event that you are killed, uh, gives them the ability to say you're no, no such person. And uh, it gives you freedom to move around a bit. Um, it's extremely dangerous because you're basically, if you're not working, you're out on your own. And uh, you suffer poverty, riches. You know, there is no, no stability in it whatsoever. Um, I handled it well, I think. You know, I survived it, no problem. But uh, at, when I've talked to people about it, the first expression is, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, in Tori's situation, um, the group she worked for um, is a descendancy. It's actually uh, 20 years after, you know, so it's a little more, a little more structured than it was uh, during my time. My, um, uh, the idea of a permanent record became very, very popular during the Clinton administration. And the idea of compromising everybody became absolute in the Clinton administration. Um, nobody got a job unless they were compromised. And in more recent times, uh, recruitment uh, does the same thing. They'll attempt to do compromise. In other words, try to set you up to, to get you compromised so that you have no choice you either take the bullet or the dollar. So you take the dollar, right? And that's how I, so many of these people are gray hats because uh, even though they might've had good intention, uh, they'll make a mistake and the rest of their lives they're held. And, you know, there are quite a few of us that didn't have that situation where we didn't make the mistake. Yeah. You know, we did what we were supposed to do and that's it. Yeah. Uh, very dangerous. Not saying, not saying that, you know, it's not a, Oh, I'm perfect white hat. No, no, I did some really messed up things, but the idea of the greater good was what they used to uh, trick us back then. You know, oh yeah, you're doing something bad, but it's for you know, is it wrong to kill Hitler when he was a baby? Yes, it was wrong to kill Hitler with a baby as a baby. You know, yeah, but they get you in this idea yeah. where you know you do this relative morality and all this stuff. That's it's hard to get out of too. You start thinking about things and saying. Was I right to do that? No, I was not. You know, we tampered with elections. We tampered with 
you know, people's lives. So, yeah, let me get let me get to a situation that you've explained to me. I want you to explain to other people, and we'll we'll start to touch on the Forrest Gump um, analogy, and that is a uh, a young a young man that you knew that you worked on cars with in Florida. Um, eventually became the uh, leader of a country. Um, yeah. And I want you to go that's through. That's happened twice. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm speaking twice. of the uh, I'm speaking of the young Haitian. And please expl- Joe, explain yeah. that story to me. Okay, so Moisey, um, Moisey was St. George's old boys' school. Um, uh, St. George's prep school uh, on Jamaica is where a lot of the um, the political figures throughout the Caribbean uh, go through that school. Um, I've had friends from there for. Oh, geez, probably 40 years now. And uh, always very good guys. Um, one of the things that they stress is that you you have a career, that you're not just a politician. So they train them to be a politician, and they send them out, and they go out in the world and find a career. Now, uh, because of my acumen, um, I have license from factory for General Motors from uh Bugatti from um, Rolls-Royce, uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Koenigsegg, um, the old Koenig company before Koenigsegg, um, Jaguar, so you go, oh, um, Lotus. So um, I have the ability to uh, have apprentices do two-year apprenticeship. I sign off for them, and then they go to school, and they become uh, factory certified. Now, um, that's a career. Um, I have a student right now that I'm working with. So, um, typically it takes about two years. Now, Jodlin came, worked for me for two years. And then, um, he actually got a job at Home Depot and didn't go to, um, uh, uh, the school. There's a school down here called Sheridan. It's a technical college. So he didn't go to Sheridan. He, he went in and got a job at Home Depot Worked for Home Depot for quite a few years. Uh, last, uh, I think it was last year in June, um, his mom came up to me. His mom lives up here. Uh, she saw me in the grocery store, and she came over, grabbed me by the elbow, and said, "Joe Lynn died." And I'm like, "Wow, you know, was it, was it the flu, or you know, what, what was it? You know, was it this, this COVID stuff, or whatever, you know?" And she goes, "No, he was killed." And I had lost track of him completely. I didn't realize that. Uh, he had gone into politics and I hadn't seen him in 10 years. So when I start looking into what was going on here, I find out uh, Jovelin became, um, Jovelin returned to Haiti and he became a very well-loved uh, political figure in Haiti and eventually made it to become the Haitian president. Now, um, there's a guy named Joseph Malgado, uh, who I knew from working in uh, Colombia with uh, the Escobar thing. Uh, he was a, uh, I don't want to call him a mercenary. That's not really, uh, he was uh, a contractor. A contractor, yeah. Um, but uh, fierce and direct and excellent at what he did. And he's the one who shot Joe Mark. Uh 12 man team, two guys from Miami here. And uh, 10 guys out of Colombia. Now, uh, because of my association with people in Colombia, uh, the Ramirez family has been a, a 
25 years or so. I'm going to be seeing them here in a couple of weeks. Um, the Ramirez family um, became the president of Colombia, uh, the consulate to Cuba, uh, the uh, chief prosecutor for the uh, Colombian DEA. Um, they're very politically oriented. Oh, uh, they run the bank in Uruguay. Um, very politically oriented family, uh, 14 kids in the family. So, you know, they're spread out all over the place. So I called and um, I checked. I said, you know, did you guys have anything at all to do with that? You know, what was the steal there? And Columbia had nothing to do with it. It was literally, he went on on his own on a private contract. Now, um, bird in the wind, you know, rumor was that it must have been pharma that did it because uh, Jovlin was going to stop the uh, shots in Haiti. He was going to stop the uh, uh, injections in Haiti. Yeah, and that was so, that was well publicized. Um, I, I was witnessed the event uh, when it happened in the news cycle, and Jovlin was um, against mandatory uh, vaccinations. Um, yeah. And and it's amazing. I want the listener to think about this as we go through amazing story after amazing story in the news cycle, and they don't get resolved. Uh, what you know? Think to yourself: Whatever came of that story? I know people were captured. It just gets dropped. Yeah, it, it just, gets dropped. Uh, those guys are probably in jail right now, or they some deal was made and they were released. Knowing Haiti, it was probably that some deal was made and they were released. And that's that, that people have a tough time understanding that. That's in most countries, um, graft is part of business. Um, we bought a radio tower in Pakistan and in the, in the actual contract for the radio tower, we had to buy six uh, Louis Vuitton purses. And I think it was 12 pairs of uh, these stupid Fila shoes. They're clay court Fila tennis shoes. Um, they're like $600 a pair. And we had to buy eight iPads as part of the deal to give out to the family members and everybody associated with it so that their, uh, their concern was was provided for is the best way to put it. So that, that idea of graft is literally like part of the society. Part they, in Spanish, they call it manchena, a little bite. You know, it's like everybody gets a little bite, you know. And that's a cultural, um, it, it's corruption. It's cultural corruption is what it is. Yeah. The other you know, day. I'm, I'm very black about it now, but. Back then, you know, it's greater good type stuff, you know. Yeah. But that's how things operate. So when we see these things disappear, that means the checkbook's open and people are getting paid. Now, what's really, really interesting, and I'm, uh, this is total, uh, you and I haven't talked about this in the past, but um, Astiana in Kazakhstan is an incredible city. Um Kazakhstan proper has $248 billion uh, GDP. Uh, they don't produce much. Uh, primarily uh, some nuclear material. Uh, they, they sell trinitite from the boss, from the, uh, uh, the bomb sites of Russia. Um, it's a glass, that, it's a green glass that they use in different uh, ceramics for durability. Um, not a whole lot of, of output from Kazakhstan. Um, Astiana, the main street on Astiana is over a quadrillion dollars worth of real estate. 
Now, how do you get from 248 billion GDP and have one street in your town that is a quadrillion dollars? It doesn't calculate right. So my assumption is that that was an international black bank. In other words, people were storing their wealth there to keep it off the books, just like the old uh, Swiss bank account idea. Yeah. Now, when Astiana fell um, back uh, a year and a half ago, I believe, about 18 months ago, uh, the people in Kazakhstan overthrew the government and took over. And the Russians came in, uh, took control of uh, the nuclear facility that's there. Um, this is all former Soviet you know, stuff that they took control of and uh, took control of the banks and everything else. So uh, that's kind of been under Soviet occupation. Now, there were a large amount of money that exited Ostiana and went to Moldova and Ukraine. And when I say large amount of money, I'm talking train car loads of cash and bricks, uh, gold bricks. So they exited as much as they possibly could. Now, when Russia went in to Ukraine, that was one of the first things they did was pin down all of that cash. They went into Moldova very quietly, took out one bank, took control of it. And are going through now you won't see that in russian press you won't see that in u.s press anywhere but this crazy throw money at ukraine yeah it keeping that manchetta those little bites afloat and this is all my opinion i have no i'm stating it like it's fact it's my opinion um i believe that what's under going on right now is their bank has been their piggy bank has been broken open and they're panicked because the only control that they have is this bullet or the dollar. So their people are expecting to get paid and that pay ain't coming. So they're dumping us dollars over there to launder it, to get it out to their little network of thieves. And that's going to come to an end very quickly here. Russia's doing a, a pretty good job on clearing out that mechanism. So, you know, we're seeing the situation where these people are looking to push a world war so that they can get a hold of the piggy banks. And they don't care about you or I or anybody else. They'll, they're scared to death because the, the things that they have done as they come to light are going to, uh, nobody is, they, literally they won't walk down the street. They won't be able to. And, yeah. And, and people are just going to take them out. You know, and that's, you know, that's the situation they're in. So they're absolutely panicked. And that's what we're seeing right now. The, the shutdown of U.S. oil, uh, that was intentional to kill the petrodollar, uh, the rise of BRIC. Uh, BRIC is actual arrangement between a bunch of countries to use a different currency in the case that the U.S. dollar became insolvent, which if you can't buy oil, the U.S. dollar has no value. So with the United States shutting down our oil exports, the U.S. dollar has no value. And that's the seriousness that we're in. Now, what that means is no oil. That means no fertilizer, no natural. You can't, you can't get the phosphates necessary to make enough fertilizer out of natural gas unless you're a country like Jordan, which what did they do to Jordan? They cut off the natural gas supply to Jordan. So fertilizer in crops today, the the theory is that the population of 7 billion is supported by the use of oil, uh, oil and energy products. 
So if you eliminate that use of oil, about 40% of that population is going to die. And they're okay with that. They see it as the wealth of that 40% of the people will be redistributed amongst everybody and everybody will pay them to survive. And this is the sickness that we're, we're dealing with. Now, um, people are still bickering, trying to figure out who the bad guys are, the good guys. This isn't a political issue. It's a criminal issue, and we need to start dealing with it as a criminal issue. Absolutely. Let me let me ask you this question. Thank you for sharing uh, your um, hypothesis on the situation. I've seen uh, multiple lines of investigation um, that backs up what you're saying. And if um, anybody want, I, I would say if you're going to question Dave, uh, first thing you should do is look at that street in Kazakhstan. Would a uh, extremely large uranium-producing country, um, basically under the thumb of Russia. Just go ahead and take a look at the infrastructure on that particular street. That would be the first uh, line of investigation to back up yeah. what Dave's saying. Now, It's absolutely amazing. I mean, even their hockey team is first rate. Uh, I mean, the, the, the sheer volume of money that flows through there for what they produce is, it doesn't equate. It's just not it's not in balance. So you mentioned something. You used the term they. And I push back a lot on people when they use the term they um, that I want more specifics uh, when other people are talking. Now, you and I have had these private conversations where, you know, I'm trying to get to the get to the meat of it. You know, we hear about Jesuits, uh, uh, Opus Dei, uh, Bloodline, Secret Society, the Davos crowd. Um, you've said very bluntly to me, Jay, uh, there are only five or six factions that control the world, and they're, uh, they, they aren't on each other's team. They're warring. They're going against each other. Can you explain this a little bit better, the way you see the world and you see these factions? What are these factions? Uh, they 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 act like old fashioned criminal gangs, like uh, what you would see in a uh, Al Capone type movie. You know the, the glamorization of Al Capone. Um, when you look at these things, they're they're so pathetically weak. They don't create anything. All they do is manipulate or destroy or create suffering, and they feed off of it. And um, you know, without naming them out, because you, you end up, you know, pointing targets on yourself. There are uh, groups. We'll we'll call one uh, the Southern Group, okay, and we'll call one the Northeastern Group. Well, the Northeastern Group is almost entirely made up of World War II Nazis. Okay, well, that Northeastern Group made deals with the Southern Group that's made up of Marxist revolutionaries that came up out of South and Central America. So those two groups basically run the majority of the United States graft. Not, you know, people think, oh yeah, the Italian mafia. No, no, the, the, these organizations uh, are in right in front of you in the politics. Um, you have uh, an organization that, that formed the Communist Party that funded Mao that that's that Eastern organization coming across. And, you know, they're all the way up to, uh, you know, funding members of Congress and then colleges in the United States and, and our current um, 
administration. Some of the people in our current administration are on the take with these people publicly, publicly. And that's the thing that, that people really need to get their head around, that this isn't a political issue. You have um, both sides being played as um, opposing teams, or, or, or better yet, think of it as pro wrestling, okay? It's that base. Um, they get out there and say, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to do better than a bad, that guy. That guy's a bad guy. In the meantime, when somebody's coming up who actually wants to help, they block them. And you're seeing that in the elections. You're seeing, we're talking about the primary stuff now, where you can't even get on the ballot because they have control of that area. Yes. And these are not, these are political organizations that are formed of the criminal organization. Now, as far as bloodlines and all that, that's, you know, you get into the, the yeah, sure, they intermarry, they, they, they are related. Um, a lot of people think they all come from one area. Um, I'm not certain about that, but I can see how they believe that. I'm talking about the, the Kazarian theory. Yeah, the Kazarians, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can see how I, uh, that's believable. Uh, I'm not so certain about it. Um, I just, I can't put the, the lines to it, but I'll tell you one thing. I know a guy in Miami, um, uh, he inherited a, a large fortune and um, he is the cousin of uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, he looks exactly like Fidel Castro. An absolute spitting image of Fidel Castro. Both of them do. So whatever happened in the 50s, you know, with their parents or whatever, fine. But that's the kind of stuff they do is they'll actually have uh, surrogate and, and stud service and all kind of crazy things. Okay? These are not normal families. Uh, when you start looking at these families and how they spread out and interlink, um, if you take a look at the investment firm, that owns the property in which ES&S, Sequoia, Seidel, and Dominion are located, you'll find that they spread the gamut. They have people that uh, supported Obama, uh, people that supported Rubio, that supported Bush, uh, talking about Jeb Bush. Um, they're on both sides. Um, you take a look at uh, people that supported the Clintons, uh, they also supported Romney. Um, very famously, you know, the Al Gore's movie, uh, Inconvenient Truth. Uh, the producer of that movie is uh, Roger Cotton Brown Jr. His father did uh, Global Warming Swindle for BBC Four. Huh. So they play both sides. And you take a look at the Huntsman's. Uh, uh, David Gay, uh, David Gay actually had a communication with him. Uh, I was uh, pitching a, a alternative energy project with him, and he, of course, they rejected it. And uh, I asked him specifically, "What are your metrics? What are you actually looking for?" And he says, "This firm is looking to receive twelve dollars from each welfare recipient per month. That was their their metric that they were looking." So when we think of, of criminal behavior, criminal activity, or political, it's all criminal. 
none of this is politics. None of this is idealism. It is literally just criminal grifting. And once we get our heads around that, then we can actually start combating it properly, uh, in my opinion, combating it properly. There are things happening, uh, very cool things. Um, kind of have the feeling that uh, these people are outside the law. Um, you know, they pay and go. That's the way that they work. Yeah. So if we get caught, they pay and go. Um, seeking legal retribution from them is basically just setting them up to steal more. And it it is this uh, inability to create that drives them. And to understand that, um, let's say you make $20 million. If you made $20 million today, you're going to have to come up with $2.3 million by the end of this year to retain that $20 million. Now, if you get that through legitimate work, that's no problem. You'll be able to generate that. But if you swindled that, you don't have the talent to create that new wealth. So you have to obtain that wealth from someplace else. So that $2.3 million is your absolute necessity just to break even so that you don't lose. And that's where these, these behaviors are motivated from. The, the behaviors we see in Congress, the behaviors we see everywhere. It does it's seem literally the fact that they cannot create. They're not the mavens of industry. They're not the people creating wealth. They're the parasites eating wealth. And, and they're panicked. And and how do they control media to the point where it's all ignored through our mainstream media? So much controlled within Hollywood. How is it just so pervasive and spread out? this control structure that that I don't want to say it, it controls people, but it definitely controls the flow of information and the knowledge about what's going on. Even though it's right, anybody who, who pays any attention, I talk to my audience about digging just one layer deep with a shovel, and you'll be able to see it clearly. Um, had, I had a neighbor who was so distraught yesterday because she she believed in Trump and she can tell she was wrong and she's so upset because of what she's seeing in the January 6th hearings, what they're calling hearings by that committee. And I had to sit down for five minutes and like and like help her see that that is all just an illusion. So what I'm asking is is if it's if it's that base and and they're and they're after that and it's it's that graft as you put it. Uh, that grift, like how how do they control media to the point where they they were nothing can get out? There's no light that can be seen. Okay, um, real simple. I, I remember exactly what it cost in 1997 for a full page ad in the New York Times. It was seventy eight thousand dollars for a full page. Okay, yeah. with their circulation and with everything in value, uh, that worked out to about two dollars and fifty one cents. Per thousand people, okay. Uh, Rush Limbaugh at his peak at eighty-four million, and he charged eighty-four million dollars per segment for his advertising. So a dollar per person, really high, but motivated. It's like NASCAR. NASCAR, you know, went on Sunday, buy on Monday. Yeah. Um, that motivation in advertising is controlled. Those values are there because they have an unlimited supply of money to pay for them. 
when you look at big tech and you look at all these different media outlets, they're going after the highest dollar. That's why if you watch CNN or MSNBC, it's one pharma ad after another pharma ad after another pharma ad after another pharma ad because nobody else can afford it. That's how they control the narrative. Most people don't even know. Uh, there's a company on Brickell Avenue in Miami called Network News Source. Uh, they provide uh, lead-ins for news services. So uh, on uh, National Diabetic Day, um, you have a football, you pay a certain amount of money, and they do a human interest story on football leading into it. And then you have uh, ads, what are called remnant ads, that reinforce. So you have the inception, which is the advertorial that's run as a human interest story with Basically, whatever network doesn't matter, they're canned. Uh, you send them a script and they read it into a green screen and they're placed on the site, you know, interviewing somebody. And there's nobody ever been there for the interview. And you end up with a situation where you can control the narrative. That has been possible since 1978 and it's formulaic. It's actually a mathematical engineering axiom of how much money it costs to generate popularity, how much the reinforcement costs, everything. Now, those prices are kept artificially high because they're not doing anything to get the money. They're stealing the money. So just like a, a, a drug lord will spend money like crazy, right? Gold-plated pistols or whatever. They have the same thing in our media. Now, even Fox News and... Um, I have to be gentle about this, but um, I know the individuals who uh, manage the contract for the top the top leads in Fox News, and the pricing is surprisingly cheap. So for so much per minute, you can basically put words in the, any one of those people's mouths. So when you see this shift of you know anti-Trumpism, and then the next day is positive for Trump, uh, those are purchased. And people really need to understand that they're being programmed, quite literally programmed. 1978, you had 20 hours per week of screen time. Today, the average person has 160 hours or 120 hours minimum of screen time. And what's shown in front of you generates the thoughts that you have. And it literally does. Uh, people think that Amazon or Alexa is guessing or Siri is guessing what it is that you're thinking about? No, it's causing you to think it, which is even more horrifying. So when you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go buy a new paper towel holder. Well, you thought of that because they showed you paper towel holders for the previous 10 days. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I know that um, I've been dealing this year, I've been dealing a lot in AI and the different uh, philosophies and arguments over the power of AI, uh, where AI is, how in-depth it is. Um, maybe we'll save, we'll save an AI conversation. Yeah, we'll do another one on AI. Yeah. I, I, don't have, I don't have the same religiosity about AI as, as most people have. Um, uh, I'll, I'll share with you a little video um, that you can use as a lead-in on that one. Uh, it's a... Uh, emulation of a cockroach brain that I built, I think around 2008, 2009. Yes, I've seen that. Uh, you've shared you've shared that video. I've seen that. Yeah, 
And, yeah, all it does is seek out the hottest point in the room. And and I've had experience with um, with programming in the sense of psychological operations, and you know the power of what I call an idea virus, right? Where where you get yeah. somebody that has some sort of authority, or even if they just tell you they have authority, and then they tell you how something is that may not be the way it is that they're just putting that idea virus in. Um, and yep. it's, it's called inception. Yeah. It's, yep. And I've been dealing a lot with that this year, uh, surrounding AI and explanations of it. Um, and, and it would be a fascinating conversation. Maybe we'll get somebody else also in there um, because I have difficulties talking about my personal story and what, um, I've gone through uh, without. I, I'm always uh, I'm always busy moderating or uh, pulling things out of others. I, I struggle to pull things out of myself sometimes. But the last thing I wanted to talk about, or at least I want to steer. I, I didn't want to end this conversation without discussing it, because one of the things that I've been fascinated by, I've seen a lot of disinformation, I've seen a lot of misinformation, and I've seen a lot of truths regarding our history history on the planet, history of our culture, that almost seems like it's been wiped away. Um, and, and I'm going to—before I ask you about Machu Picchu, to Peru, 2012, I want to just tell a story that's from my youth when I was studying um, ancient Egypt. And I would always think, well, how did they make these structures? And I was trying to conceptualize it um, even as a young adult. And then you come to the grand Graham Hancocks of the world, and you start to understand that it's possible, possible most likely probable that those pyramids weren't built 5,000 5, years ago. They might be tens of thousands of years old. Now, there's another aspect that you've per personally witnessed, and I want you to share people, share with people what you experienced in Peru in 2012 and the things that you've seen that um, imply or prove that there, there are ancient cultures and or history that has been co-opted and or hidden from us. Well, my interest in Peru... Um, primarily was uh, what's known as pre-Inca. Um, they put this generic term on it. Um, the Inca are, were a, a tribal, um, centralized organization that worked on the principles of agriculture. So it fits in with this modern narrative of our um, cultural evolution that, you know, we became agricultural and then we formed governments, right? Well, um, there was a guy, Pachacute, in the Inca uh, that actually came up with the idea, if you work for three years, you get fed the rest of your life. If you work the second three years, one of your family gets fed the rest of their lives. And by doing that, he, he communalized um, all of the uh, desperate, uh, separate tribes uh, throughout the Andes into um, apus, which are like family units, and... Uh, little towns and pueblos and, you know, they're pueblos after the Spanish, but um, actually had a, a fairly thriving agricultural culture. The thing is, is that they're sitting on top of a structure that is the Urubamba River Valley called the Sacred Valley. So it, it extends from the north end of Ecuador and the Colombian border all the way to 
the south end of Chile and Patagonia. And through this valley is a river called the Urubamba River. And the interesting thing is, is that the entire valley is terraced. Uh, they always do a really good job of showing you like crop shots of uh, Machu Picchu or, or a Yante Tambo. Uh, you know, the view is always of this small area that's terraced. Yes. Uh, the whole valley is terraced. Now, most of the terracing is completely covered uh, with 15 feet or more of uh, overburden. Um, as you're driving through the valley, you can see these horizontal lines on both sides of the hillsides all the way up through the valley. The river itself has stones that are physically placed there in crossing points that have stones that are so massive, we currently don't have the ability to move them. No matter, we don't have the ability to move these stones. It's kind of like the stone of the pregnant woman in, in Turkey uh, at the uh, temple, temple of Baal, the Roman uh, post or pre-Roman site over there. Um, these structures that are underneath the Inca are in two layers. You have a layer that uh, we can move. Uh, the stonework is very um, precise and, and quite beautiful, but we can do it conventionally today. Then there's a layer of stonework that's impossible for us to do. On top of all of it is the layer of just stacked stones from the Inca. So when you look at these sites, you'll see these grandiose architecture and then filled in with the Inca construction because they were living on these sites and using them. Now, when you get down into an area called Paracas, um, the bodies of the people, um, Chachapoya are what they're called, um, are unusual. Um, in my opinion, uh, I do not believe they're Homo sapiens sapiens. I think there are different uh, species of people from earlier than us. Um, one of the telltale signs is they have no sagittal crest. Their suture in the center of their head that goes up from your nose to the crown mm -hmm. doesn't exist. That that bone plate is one solid bone plate. That's that's a differentiation. That's not an adaptation or a or deformity like they claim that's a deformity. Their cranial size, the actual skull size, is enormous. Um, I saw the unwrapping of a, a young woman, um, I would say probably uh, early pubescent. Um, her hip bones had not spread yet, so she wasn't of childbearing age yet. When you say unwrapping, um, you're talking about mummification? It, it was a, a natural mummy. It wasn't like an intentional, like the Egyptians did. It was uh, basically desiccation. You're at high enough altitude that the water content is so low that a lot of bacteria don't survive. So there's not a, a lot of decomposition up there. So over time, they become uh, like leather. You know, they basically tan. And <clears throat> boy, my voice is going. But um, these bodies that they find, and we're not talking about a single body. We're talking several bodies um this one girl her shin bone her tibia was 31 inches 
So from her ankle to her knee was 31 inches. That puts her a little over seven foot tall, minimum 12 foot tall, if she was fully standing erect. Now, I don't think that these are the biblical uh, giants, the Nephilim. That's a different different topic, different subject. But um, yeah, they're, they were big people. Now, in my opinion, they are the ones who constructed most of the mid-layer um, architecture that's down there. There is a larger architecture beneath that that uh, they attribute to the Veracocha. The living memory of these beings is called Veracocha. When the conquistadores came in and the chroniclers came in, they created a single god known as Veracocha that was to be replaced by the Christian god. Um, when you talk to the people, they're talking about multiple Veracocha, like a civilization called the Veracocha. Now, looking at the scale of their buildings, uh, they're between 31 and 35 foot tall. The images of them that were carved by people, um, they look very much like the the Hindu Hanuman, um, which is a tradition in the Hindu culture of people about the same size, about 31, 35 foot tall, or Jainism, uh, with Jain being almost 60 foot tall. Now, when you get your head around it and you look at the hinges on the doors and where the door handles are located. You have a door handle at 20 feet. Why is there a handle at 20 feet? That's not for little people to be grabbing and it's not ornamental. You see um, steps with 52 inches for each step. So the rise on the step is 52 inches. The depth of the step is 52 inches. That's that's not little people. That's not us. That's not the Inca. That's not the, the Moroccans. That's something much bigger. Now, one of the most famous shots, and I sent over a picture of it to you there, Jay, was the, uh, the shot of my wife and I standing um, by the temple of, uh, uh, they call it the Temple of the Priestesses. Yes. And looking, looking down at Machu Picchu, and you'll see a stairway in the background. Now, that stairway, the, the base stonework under the stairway, is this 52 inch by 52 inch stonework on top of it is the Inca stonework where they put four steps in between each of the big steps and smaller stones. So when we look at the stuff, you have to look at what you're actually seeing. You're not seeing Inca construction. You're seeing Inca construction on top of the old stuff. Now the temple of the priestesses is a rock. It's about 180 foot wide by about 60 foot tall about 12 foot thick that's balanced on six spherical shaped uh, boulders that were obviously brought up from the river up to the top of this mountain. We're, we're up about, I would say about 1800 feet from the river at that point. And when you stand at the altar, what the conquistador is called the altar, you can hear somebody speaking in a low voice, low voice at the river. You can hear the babbling of the brook at the river. The thing is an acoustic structure. It is absolutely fabulous. Now, Inca built a little house on one side of it, and then you continue up that hill to something they call the hitching post of the sun. And in Inca mythology, 
uh, that's where the sun would rise every day and set, and that's where it was tied to the earth. They had their own mythology, but if you look at it really closely, uh, it's an actual pedestal. It's a, uh, a piece of another device. And if you do a 360 and look around, you'll see the other side of the pedestal. It looks like a, like they had some kind of a zip line between two mountainsides. Hmm. So if you can imagine a zip line going probably six miles, we don't have cable that goes more than four miles. They did. And evidence of it everywhere. Now, um, when you get up to a place like Ollante Tombo, uh, there's stone structures at Ollante Tombo that reflect light. And on December 21st, 2012, that was the uh, winter solstice. Uh, the moon rose between uh, two distant mountains to the east, and the beams of light came through the gap in the mountains. And the gap in the mountains, once you look at it, you look at it with a telescope, once you're up on top of the hill, you can see that they're, they've been modified. They're, that's not natural formation. That beam comes through, that moonlight beam comes through, bounces off from these structures that the Spanish called granaries. Now, these granaries are made of gypsum and quartz. They're still white to this day. They're kind of yellowish white, but they're still white. And the big six stones, the pink granite, that is always called for, you know, they call it the temple at Ollante Tambo, sits opposite from it on another hillside. Now, when this light came up, it bounced off the granaries and lit up that red wall. And there's a, a, a land structure down in the valley between the granite temple and the quarry where the granite was uh, taken from about four miles away. There is a pyramid structure in that valley. And looking at it from the top the next day, uh, your eyes um, fight with you to see the pyramid. It looks like uh, like waterways on the corners of it. It's so massive that uh, your brain just doesn't want to accept the fact that it's a structure. You know, you, it tries. You, it's hard to describe uh, when you see these things that your brain is tell, telling you that it's something different than what you're looking at. So, when this thing lit up at eleven o'clock, uh, December twenty first, two thousand twelve, we had just gotten into the hotel. And I was standing on the balcony uh, looking out. I could barely see the temple. I could barely see any of the Ayante Tambo. And it lit up. And I got my wife up and said, hey, you know, come look at this. This is like they're putting on a light show or something, right? No, this was all natural light. Now, that angle of the moon rising between those mountains in the distance only occurs every 26,000 years. So that's an archaeoastronomy marker for the period of time. They had to have known about that occurrence at some time in the past. The idea that the Spanish have is that all this stuff was built in the 14th century. This stuff is so much older. Um, I calculate myself that most of the structures are about 35,000 years old. And that's from lichen growth. Now you have this real slow kind of looks like rust on stones. Stuff grows like maybe an eighth of an inch per year. And these are giant lichens. I mean, you know, 16 foot wide, 
lichens that are, you know they're just enormous in size yeah and those don't grow like that and you're at altitude so everything's stunted to begin so there are places like that then over at pisco is another example uh, there's a circular formation in pisco and in the center of the circular formation is uh, a terraced uh, kind of a trapezoidal triangle shaped thing with a fire pit underneath and I got interested in, as to whether or not they were actually using um, what's described as agua de oro, which is uh, gold water. It's actually uranium dioxide, a jello cake is what it is. Yeah. And I, looked, I was looking for signs of it all over the place down there. I was looking at the quarries and looking in uh, the structures. Now, when I talked to Quechua uh, people, they uh, explained to me that all the northern troughs along the walls were bad water and all the southern troughs were good water. So I followed the troughs down and at the base, I found yellow cake. I found uh, uranium dioxide, very small amounts, but still on the walls of the, the stilling wells at the bottom of these uh, runoffs. What's interesting is if you put uranium dioxide into granite, it will actually make the granite like clay. And when it drains out through gravity, it leaves the hardest granite that you could possibly have. And same thing with dolomite with a little bit more quartz. So the structures were actually made using uh, readily available materials that were there. So the mystery of, oh, we don't know how they cut these things or all that. No, I think, my opinion, they were cast stone. They were uh, geopolymer cast with uranium dioxide. And that's how they got the hardness. But the average person's not going to know that because they're not familiar with, you know, uh, radioactive mineralogy. Yeah. It's just, it's been kept secret from everybody. So, you know, when I see this stuff, I was uh, amazed. Now, uh, there are bones, um, big bones. I'm talking about the 35-footer style bones yep. down there. Um, they found mummies uh, north of Lima in a structure to me, looks like a water, like a water desalinization plant. And they found them at a place called Marco Wasi, which was, uh, it's like a sculpture garden up in the mountains. Uh, there was a big crack and there was a bunch of people down in the crack. And they're all nine to 12 foot tall. Wow. So definitely another civilization. When, uh, we have more time and I have voice. Um, we can talk about uh, some of the stuff that I saw over Gambia and, and uh, uh, Middle East and Africa and over in uh, uh, the Far East. Well, you're doing so it for are... me, but I'm going to interrupt because I, I was, I've just been waiting for that breaking point. Um, my, my friend, you need to take care of yourself. And I don't, yeah, my voice is I don't <laughs> want to drain you. I do not want to. I want to have future conversations. This oh, one yeah. this one was fascinating. I don't know if I'm going to release it as two parts because we kind of went through more technical. Yeah, there's more than parts. Yeah, yeah technological I would, things. I would go ahead and cut it up. 
I'm sorry for interrupting, Dave. But you know, I just I just want to let you go and let you know how much I appreciate you. Um, oh, and, no worries, man. And if people want to connect with Dave, he's not hiding. Shoot, we didn't even get to the part of the conversation where where uh, I talk about if uh, you were coming out of the woodwork um, or if you've been laying low and why you were laying low and why you're coming out now. I will save that possibly for the way we start yeah. the next conversation. Yep, excellent. And, if, and by then I'll have my video up so that we can uh, we can show people the video and, and actually uh, start pushing some uh, traffic towards uh, what I'm trying to do too. You know? Yes, and we're t- and he's talking about on Telegram. You can find him. He's at Dave Forty Two, but he's working with uh, Broken Anthem and Broken Anthem's channel on Telegram, coming up with a series they're calling Mysteries of the Earth. And Dave, and um, what is Broken Anthem's name? Uh, he prefers to keep himself uh, uh, quiet. Oh, okay. So that's why I don't know it then. Yeah. Um, and Broken yeah. Anthem, a terribly nice guy, great videographer. They're working together to come up with a series called Mysteries of Earth. Um, Dave's also regularly on the Indecent Disclosure um, Telegram channel. Um, I'll have links to all these things. No one's gatekeeping. Uh, Dave can go for hours and hours typing, um, but as you can see, his voice starts to go, um, and we have to be concerned about his health because uh, he wants to he wants to live long enough to where he can make a great impact on this earth for his grandchildren. And um, I'm trying to help him, um, and a lot of other people are volunteering. Uh, we just need to catch up to him in some ways because he's got four di- four different projects going, which I'm used to. But I've got to learn a lot about a lot of things um, just to work on a couple. Well, we have the we have the primary project, and that's the World Freedom Network, and the rest is tangible and leaded. But um, getting this network up is my my goal for the the foreseeable future is to get this up so that we're able to actually survive number one and actually flourish. Uh, We don't need to go down with the ship. We can flourish. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. 300 starts with 300,000 people. And I have talked with Dave um, because I've challenged him and I've said, you know, I appreciate everything you're saying, but what it requires is um, a lot of numbers in the beginning. And he is not afraid to be challenged. He gave clear examples of a plan. Um, and uh, it's just a blessing that um, you've come into my life and my friends' lives. And we appreciate you, Dave. Thanks for sharing yourself today. Thank you. I'm flattered. And I'm also very grateful that. Uh, uh, people have my will listen to me. You know, it's been my goal is to actually bring a change to what's going on. Absolutely, positive change. And there's a yeah, and, and, and there he was tripping along the light, fantastic, and somehow found found a group of psychics and uh, do-gooders um, that he stumbled upon. Um, and we've been we've been hammering him with questions for about a month and a half to two months now. I'm glad we finally yeah. got you recorded on the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Great. 
Let's be friends. We're all on this cosmic spaceship together. Subscribe and share the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Visit our sponsors, SmokeAndJays.com. Everything for your smoke and lifestyle. StonerHoroscopes.com. Adora Zen dishes cosmic vibes for the stoner at heart. KickFromTheSpot.com. Soccer is American.